You're listening to another episode of the Young Investors Podcast, so sit back and relax as myself, Brandon, and my buddy Hamish discuss the latest in the world of finance and stock market investing. Now, a quick reminder before we get into the podcast is that nothing in this podcast should be taken on as personal financial advice. If you're ever unsure about your finances or investing and you need some help, make sure you reach out to a qualified financial advisor. But with all that said, let's get into another episode of the Young Investors Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to the Young Investors Podcast. As you can already tell, joined by a very special guest, our good friend, Tom. Investing with Tom, the man, the myth, the legend. He's back once again. You know, I always see, we always see a spike on our analytics when you join us on the podcast, Tom. So, um, there must be something to that. We might have to work out a long-term contract for you in the next... (laughs) How you doing? Yeah, pretty good. It's good to be back. Um, I I don't know why there's a spike in the analytics, but, but I'll take it. (laughs) <laughs> actually no I'm, I'm not even like joking like every time you come on the podcast there's like more views so it's good i like it nice <laughs> i feel like hey gone hamish yeah i'm going well i feel like the three of us have a pretty good um like pretty good chemistry and i think especially mm. after i don't know i especially noticed this with our u.s episodes um where the three of us are in person it just kind of works well and me and brandon were talking about this the other day as well like we i think we have pretty good chemistry going back and forth but having three people with good chemistry on a podcast is like I feel like that's the perfect amount for for just mm. kind of sharing the load kind of thing. So, yeah, yeah, works well. Any more any more than three is just too many. I've watched a couple of podcasts where they have like like I'm not even kidding like five to ten people. I don't get that, and it's yeah. just it's just hectic. Like sometimes the special occasions, like the ones we did for Movember, they worked. But even still, you still get people that end up like not saying anything just because yeah, it's yeah. just too many speakers kind of thing. But yeah, two people can like two people's fine and it's good. But then again, if one of you is flat that day, it can really affect the pocket. But yeah, three is just great. Banto is is flowing. Everyone's one of us has got something funny to say. Anyway, yeah. Merry Christmas, everybody! It's Merry not Christmas. Christmas for us right now because uh, we are recording this ahead of time. But it is. Well, I guess it's not really Christmas for you guys either. It should be the twenty fourth. But hope you guys are having a good holiday period. Hope you guys are getting some rest, chilling out, listen to the Young Investors podcast, of course. Um, and today, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing some Q and A. So I asked um, for some questions. If you guys had any questions over on my YouTube channel. And we've chucked them all in the dock and we are just going to start rolling through them. Some, some questions were very interesting. We, we might yep. see if we, if we get to a, a few sus. of those ones. A, li- yeah, a, little, a little bit sus. A little bit sus. I don't know, I don't know what, what's bit, going on with uh, your audience, uh, Brandon. But yeah, uh, I don't know. I don't get those questions. Maybe I'll, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> a few for mature audiences. We'll see if, uh, if we get to some of those. Depends how tired we're feeling in about 45 minutes. Um, but... Should we, I don't know, do you guys want to pick one first up or should I pick the first one? Um, I'll pick the first one. Here yeah. we go. Let's start. Uh, Just how there. about, um, let's let's start here. Let's start Let's start at the top. Duck Sups, what a name. Um, I would be interested to know how your investing strategies have been influenced over time, particularly with respect to books slash people you've been exposed to over time that have changed your views. Um, I, you may have uh, you may have started started out relying on PEs more from, say, Peter Lynch from One Up on Wall Street, but after following Toby Carlyle, uh, you more closely follow enterprise value. Um, who wants to take this one? Tom? Tom, do you want yeah. to have a go? Yeah, sure. Put you in the hot seat. Yeah, sure. How, um, how, how's, how's your style changed over time? Yeah, I, I think the core philosophy of like trying to buy a good business at a reasonable price is 
that was like seared in pretty early on and i don't think that's really changed although the framework yeah. for finding those things has probably changed a little like um i think all three of us were pretty heavily influenced by phil town early on um yeah and i still kind of use that general framework of like um you know the 4m checklist to kind of work through um understanding a business and making sure i've got all the big areas kind of covered um mm. but yeah other things have definitely influenced over it over time, like Monge Pabrai kind of opened my eyes to the $0.50 cent dollar kind of world and, um, you know, showing that you can make good returns in slower growing or even like mm. shrinking businesses if the price is, is good enough. Um, and then the other thing, like the, the most recent evolution for me has probably been paying more and more attention to like uh, capital allocation frameworks within a business. Like it's it's one thing to buy a company that has a higher return on invested capital, for example, but if they don't have anywhere to now deploy that capital, then the return on equity and stuff doesn't really matter because they can't you know, invest more incremental dollars at those high rates. Um, and that's where it becomes like, nice to have a, a CEO that understands, you know, when share purchases make sense or when they don't make sense, when acquisitions might make sense, when they don't make sense and that type of stuff. So, um, yeah, I think the core framework. So just like keeping the growth runway open kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, just making sure like if you've got a, a really good business, generated a bunch of cash, um, you funnel those dollars that are coming in the door into like intelligent places basically. Right. Um, like yeah. for, for Berkshire, for example, with Buffett, that's been – largely acquiring new businesses and that's like a pretty rare skill for a ceo to acquire a random like mix of completely unrelated businesses and have it work um yeah so yeah that's been like the general general um evolution for me i'd say yeah and i I guess hamish i I guess we get a little bit of that um outside of reinvesting into the business from monish recently talking about uber cannibals and kind of that as an outlet for for businesses to you know if their share price is really low then they can potentially repurchase their stock and that's like another outlet for them to um to allocate capital besides reinvesting back into the business or acquiring other businesses um but I think in terms of, yeah, I, I, pretty similar to you, Tom and, and, and Brandon, I, I started very much with Phil Town stuff and then kind of evolved into looking at more direct stuff from Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, which I guess kind of just broadens your your um, understanding of what Phil Town is teaching. But then more recently, I guess, m- maybe same as you, not, not with Monish, but looking at other kind of modern uh, takes on value investing and how that's been applied. So for me, that's kind of like Nick Sleep uh, and, and seeing the specific types of businesses he's looked at. Um, so like scaled economies, shared businesses. Um, so I guess that's how it's kind of evolved for me from understanding like the framework from like the classic uh, value investing principles and then seeing how different modern investors are applying it today. Mm. Yeah, I think particularly at the start, I really didn't have any background in investing. So I latched on to, you know, Phil Town's books and it became very formulaic. It was very much checklist, you know, make sure the company is doing this tick, 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 tick. And I think once I started um, getting a little bit more comfortable with applying that, I realized that you'll never get every tick on the checklist. It just it just doesn't happen. Yeah. It just for one reason or another. So I think I got more comfortable with the idea and especially listening to people like Monish Pabrai, uh, but even like Buffett, Monk, like all those guys really, Guy Spear, is that it's more like each like each, each individual there's there is no perfect formula. There's just each ind- individual business on its own merit kind of thing. You have to understand the story and uh, 
and why things are happening as opposed to just, is this number checking this box kind of thing? So you kind of get that sense for there are so many of like value investing stocks out there or opportunities, but they will all look probably completely different. I think that was probably the one thing. And then the other thing that I definitely focused on more and more as I went is just like extending the time horizon for my investing. Like I think even though all the books say, yeah, make sure 10 years and stuff, I think like mentally myself, I hadn't really quite committed to like at least 10 years. I think I was kind of like, oh, but you know, if it went up a lot in the next three years, that'd be really good, right? (laughs) Um, And I guess this is like Monish talking about, you know, people buying Amazon back in the day or whatever, like 20 years ago or something like that. And just seeing some of the returns in, in these businesses over time, just like, yeah, sure. It's nice. It'd be nice if you made a boatload the next three years, but just really thinking about, okay, what about this business in 10 to 20 years and really committing yourself to a longer term approach, I think was probably pretty, uh, pretty influential for me. But yeah, I think, I think those, those would be my two main things of how, how things have slightly changed. But, um, but yeah, you do, like you said, Tom, you do get that framework pretty early. Once, once you kind of tap into the Buffett framework, I don't think that ever changes, right? Yeah. Do you think that, that that will ever ever change? I don't think you're fundamentally going to invest differently. No, I, I don't think so. I mean, you have weird special situations and stuff come up, but like the, mm. yeah, you're always trying to get more value than what you pay for, I guess, as, yeah. as Charlie would put it. So, yeah, yeah. no, exactly right. It, it is kind of funny. Hamish, pick another one. Oh, no, oh. You, you got something to say. I yeah, was going to say, going. it is funny because some people, I guess it does come back to a, what a lot of value investors say, which is it's kind of your, uh, maybe it's like a biological thing because I think a lot of people just tend to find themselves jumping from strategy to strategy over time, over like a five-year period. Whereas um, I know all three of us, as soon as we, all of us learned, um, you know, Graham or, or Buffett-style value investing, it just kind of clicked and we just kind of stayed on that path. Whereas I, yeah. I see a lot of other people who kind of just, just tend to jump around or, um, you know, they go from this, they go to small caps, they go, now they're a dividend investor, now they're a growth investor. And they mm-hmm. just, they, it seems like they haven't kind of settled on an idea or a set of principles. Whereas as soon as I read kind of, well, I think it was Phil Town stuff first, but then certainly as soon as I read Berkshire letters, I was like, oh, this is like, it was like, I just, makes just, sense. it's like, I just discovered something that was like, uh, I shouldn't be, it makes I logical know. sense. Yeah. It just made perfect sense. So, um, mm. it is interesting, um, that. Yeah. Um, all right. Let it's me, good uh, when you hit those. Si- oh yeah. You go. You go. No. Yeah. No. What are you gonna say? Pick another one. Okay. Uh, I was just like, it's good when you hit those situations where you just like don't really, you can't really refute anything. It's just yeah. like, hmm, yeah, that makes sense. Oh uh, yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yep. That also makes sense. Okay. Better do it like this. Yeah. 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 Sorry, right. sorry, guys. Let's we're working. Go, we're working on a bit of a delay here. We've got um, bit of a delay. We're, we're uh, it's so much easier to do these in person. So hopefully we can do that um, at some point in the future. But for now, you'll have to put up with us um, kind of uh, jumping over each other, <laughs> tripping over <laughs> each other. As we, uh, yeah. Wait, what was that, Hamid? Oh no, so uh, uh, me? Uh, no, uh, to- uh, uh. <laughs> um, All right, I'll uh, we'll just uh, I'll, I'll go. I'll skip a couple and we'll go down here. Um, this is the one kind of directed uh, at you, Tom. Uh, how do you combine a full-time non-investing job like Tom with doing uh, in-depth research of companies? How have you kind of found mm. that? Uh, yeah, the short answer is I probably look into a lot less companies than I'd like to because I have a full-time job. <laughs> that, that's, the, <laughs> that's the true answer really. But um, yeah, like um, just making the time to do YouTube content and, and study investments and that kind of stuff. Like it's what I'm into. Um you know, if I yeah. didn't have a YouTube channel or whatever, I would still be, 
you know, spending some time on the stuff. Like my, you know, some people might go watch TV or watch Netflix or whatever. Like I woke up first thing this morning. Um, this is going to give away the date that we're recording this podcast, but woke up first thing this morning <laughs> and read the Thor Industries quarterly report for like 45 minutes in bed. So um, that's just kind of <laughs> like the, that's where my personality is sort of at with this stuff. So mm. um, yeah, I'm just kind of really into it. Um, the short answer is, yeah, I, I just look into less, less companies than I would probably be able to if I was you know, if I wasn't working full time or whatever. Um, but yeah. Any takeaways from Thor? Um, yeah. Not, ha- you're not, you're not there yet. Oh, Hamish yeah, you and guys I were, could talk about Thor. Yeah. Hamish and I were going back and forth on this a little bit uh, today. So like um, Thor, Thor's a um, RV wholesaler for anyone that's unfamiliar. They had like a big boom over the past couple of years with the pandemic and cheap financing and various things. Um, so I think, uh, revenue for the quarter was down something like 20% year over year and earnings were down about 40% year over year, although um, about 50, yeah. So um, they're eating through this like huge order backlog they've had for a while pretty aggressively now. Um, yeah. But they still generate, still generate a lot of cash. Like um, I used to be invested in Fiat Chrysler, for example, which was the type of business where if you had a – five or 10% reduction in revenue, you'd suddenly go to like earning, you know, razor thin net profit margins to like burning cash like you wouldn't believe. And um, <laughs> and and Thor, I think, has something like 80% of their cost of goods are like variable costs. So yeah. um, as revenue comes down, they can drop a lot of costs out and, and still um, produce cash flow. So like they bumped their dividend 5%. I think they bought back a little over half percent of the shares outstanding in the quarter um, and repaid a bit of debt as well, even though they're going through a little bit of a headwind. Um, and they're still right. guiding for something like $8 a share in earnings for the full year, which would put them at roughly a 10 PE, even after all this decline in um, revenue and stuff. So those, yeah. were, those were the initial takeaways. I'm guessing just people aren't buying RVs at the moment. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, a lot of people mm. finance them, so interest rates going up don't yeah. help. Um, higher fuel costs, although they've put out some research saying that fuel costs actually don't make as big an impact as people might expect, but presumably that's had a, a bit of an impact as well. Yeah, they're, right. they're, okay. it's interesting because, yeah, I mean, obviously they're a very very cyclical business, but they are, I believe they're the only, at least the only public uh, RV manufacturer that has remained profitable through every recession in the last 30 years. Um, I'm not sure about Forest River, which is a, a subsidiary of Berkshire. I'm, obviously, we don't kind of get the details on, um, on on how they've performed during recessions. But um, yeah, Thor has this incredible variable cost structure, which allows them to um, reduce their costs aggressively. Um, and, and that's something that a lot of other RV companies can't do. So um, yeah, I think com- completely expected if you're keeping up with the company, you know, the decline in revenue. I would expect it probably to continue to get worse, at least in the short term, given the significantly high interest rates. Um, but um, yeah, pretty pretty normal stuff for, for the, the nature mm. of the business and given how insanely good 2020, 2022 financial year was. Yeah. They had like a massive order backlog, didn't they? Yeah. What did it get up to in the end? Was it was like Thor? 18 billion or something insane. It was like yeah. really high. It, it um, was- so they just worked <clears throat> through all that. Basically. Yeah, it's down yeah, to okay. uh, low single-digit billions now, I think. I don't know the number off the top oh, of my head. I, I want to um, say it's like five or six or seven billion or something yeah, yeah. like that now. Yeah, but their, right. their annual revenue 
last financial year was like what 16 17 billion something like that so they had like a year's yeah. revenue of afford backlogs for a while there um wow so got, yeah. got pretty wild i saw specifically in the u.s towables segment um which had been like a bit of a shining light for thor over the past couple of years their order backlog was down like 80 percent roughly yeah went, went from like 10 to 2 or something 10 yeah. billion to like yeah. 2 billion or something like that yeah but it's all right it's a little weird like the european business um has been struggling to get chassis european motorized business has been str- struggling to get chassis and stuff the past couple of years so they're still working through an order backlog like there's a few different dynamics to the overall kind of business but that's there probably enough on Thor. <laughs> <laughs> Hamish, do you have anything to add on somebody that's looking to get into investing while they also are stuck with a full-time job? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think I think my kind of approach has always been to build your portfolio around how much time you have to <clears throat> you have to analyze companies. So, I mean, if you only have a small amount of time every single week, you have to recognize that you're probably not going to be able to find maybe a full portfolio of companies that you can keep up to date with. So maybe that means that you only allocate a small amount of your portfolio to the individual picks that you can spend time on. And maybe the rest is, is more broadly, you know, diversified. Um, so that, that's, that, that's kind of how I would think about it. And that's how I used to think about it. I used to have most of my portfolio in, in index funds. And then I would just spend the little time that I had outside of work in university uh, on trying to find one really good idea um, and then kind of broadened out from there. So, um, yeah, I think just think about how you allocate your time if it's, if it's limited. The same way that mm-hmm. even if you had a full work week, you, would, you still think about how you allocate your time. It's just, um, yeah, it's just, just you yeah. have less time. Yeah, I think, um, I think a, a good tip there is just to be stay close to your circle of competence and don't drift yeah. too far. You know, because I mean, you naturally there are businesses. Even if you never read an annual report, you kind of keep up with them anyway, just through your interests and and what you yeah. do for work and that kind of thing. So yeah. that can that can be handy as well. The 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 other thing I would say, I think Hamish, you might have mentioned this on, um, you know, a, a few podcasts back that I think you've bought like one stock this year or something. Um, yeah, I'm yeah. I'm in the same boat with one new stock and have added to some other stuff. Like you yeah. you don't need to find ten new stocks a year to like no. build a. Mm a good portfolio over time. So um, yeah. that help, helps with the overall time requirements, I guess. That's true. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a good yeah. point. I think I've I think I've think about found one good idea per year, but it's certainly not been one each year. I think I didn't invest in anything significant last year. I made some little kind of toe-dipping investments, but nothing big. And then in 2020, I was able to pick a, a few at once because everything was kind of down. And then, yeah, yeah. this year again, mm-hmm. one. So there's, there's sometimes years where I... There's, very regularly six month periods that go by and I haven't done, I haven't touched my portfolio besides regularly contributing to index funds, which I always do as kind of a foundation. Mm. But um, yeah, you don't need that many ideas. And even one per year is a lot. If you look at some other invest for some value investors, even one per year is, is way more than they, you know, end up um, adding to their portfolio. But it kind of depends on Mm. the specific type of value investing that you're doing as well. I think whether you're doing kind of deep value versus, um, looking for long-term compounders, it, the, the frequency of opportunities can can kind of vary a little bit. Mm. All right, I want to move on to this question because uh, I feel like we can give some top tips here. I'm planning to do the Berkshire Annual Meeting pilgrimage this year. If you guys can talk about some details of it, that would be highly appreciated. I wanted to put this one in. 
We can just yeah. reminisce. We can just go back. Oh, those were the days you remember that. It's not trip. a cult. What a trip. It's not a cult. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a cult. It's not a cult. It's totally a cult. <laughs> How yeah. good was that? Do we have any tips? I mean, so for those that don't know, I think basically all you guys would know that we went to America together earlier this year for the Berkshire Hathaway shareholder meeting in Omaha. Um, any tips, any tips for somebody that wants to do it? Well, we ran into some issues. First of all, we were not, the, the date was different for this year's meeting, wasn't it? So that threw us off by like a week or something. We had to wait for it to be announced. And I think the date was slightly different to usual, but also for us internationals, it was quite quite a challenge to get those mm. tickets in time because um, basically yeah. just Berkshire, if you're international, um, you just have to get tickets in the post, right? And, yeah, although um, I, I think you can turn up like the day before or something. We didn't actually end up trying that. Yeah, you can just turn up right. and prove that you're a shareholder if you've got a statement from your broker or whatever and, and get a pass. Right. Yeah. Okay. Or everyone yeah, because that was had spears. <laughs> That's also an option. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it was very, like, long and it was a messy, like, you had to mail them and then they would check you on the share registry and then they would mail back the ticket. And, by like, Tom, by the time we had taken off to go to America, the tickets hadn't arrived at your house, right? Yeah, I, I got back. So, we are in the States for two weeks, I think, or, or you guys might have been yeah. a little bit longer, yeah. but I was basically exactly two weeks. And I, I got back in... Um, like the mail arrived basically as I got back with the tickets. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, so um, yeah. two weeks too late, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, but Hamish, you found a good workaround where you can just buy them on eBay. So, yeah, yeah. If worst comes to worse. There's there's quite a few people that um, live in Omaha and just and just get them very quickly and then sell them on eBay. So you can mm-hmm. you can just do that. Um, and sometimes they're really expensive, but uh, if you just wait a few days, usually someone puts them up really cheap because they're getting them for free. Yeah. So if they're not going to go, yep. usually they're listed for for you know relatively um, cheap, even if you want to get them shipped internationally. Um, yeah, because yeah. you can get four tickets per shareholder, right? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you could last year. Yeah, and yeah. it's not. I should say as well, it's not like one of those things where you know you, you boop, you swipe a QR code on your phone or anything, and it's linked to your like Google Wallet or anything. It's just like a flipping little card that you just show them. It's well, just like a lanyard. Yeah, and I mean that's the annoying part of it because if it was just digital, we could have got it immediately. <laughs> they wouldn't. Yeah, they exactly. wouldn't have to physically mail it to us. It is. I mean, obviously, getting yeah. the card is 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 cool, and it, it's like a nice souvenir, but. Um, yeah, it's not exactly Buffett's not exactly up with the uh, with the latest tech. Let's yeah. just uh, let's just say that. <laughs> What's a QR code? Munger's like, I think Ticketmaster's like trading turds. <laughs> <laughs> nah, I don't know. Any um, other tips? What, what 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 tips can we give somebody that's do, looking to go? Do you guys think, with our long experience? <laughs> do you guys do you guys think if we did it again, we would stay a little closer to the venue? I was, I was yeah. I was going to say yeah, stay in the city. Um, Stay safe. We didn't realize <laughs> that there were some areas of Omaha that seemed like there was slightly higher crime. I mean, we should have anticipated something yeah. like that. Uh, well, I mean, we live in Australia, New Zealand, so we don't really have to worry about like guns or, you know, that kind of violence or anything. Not that we actually saw anything while we were there in Omaha. I'm sure it's a very no. nice place. But from the general vibe I think we got from Uber drivers, people we spoke to, is that there are definitely some areas that um, you probably don't want to kind of be out after dark. There's some neighbourhoods where you just kind of don't want to go. Um, so I think, yeah, if we had our time again, um, we would probably stay closer to the city, I think. Um, thoughts, opinions? I think so. Yeah, yeah I think... I, um, go on. 
go ahead. I, I was just going to say, like, about two weeks or something after I got back, just out of interest, I looked up because um, there's a Marriott and a Hilton straight across the road from the CHI Health Center where the um, where the Berkshire Media next year is. I um, just out of interest looked up, you know, how much a room would be for the following. Um, like April, May to book for the Berkshire weekend. And I think it was already sold out like a year. <sighs> Whoa. So damn. Um, you'd want to get onto it like now, I reckon, if you're thinking of going, just book something. But when does the, when does the, when do the dates get announced or do you just assume it's going to be uh, the, the same well, date? The, the date was on the, it was announced at last year's Berkshire meeting. Like it was on the back of the um, passes and a few things, I think. Oh, was it? So we already know pretty the date. Sure. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Oh, oh okay. Sh- I've, I've made a blunder there. In that case, we yeah, have Hamish. We should definitely, we yeah, should definitely yeah. get on that. Well, <laughs> even regardless, if, if we can't stay at one of the places that's right across from the from, from the venue, I mean, uh, I, I think at least next time, if, even if we're booking an, a, an Airbnb or something like that, we will be a little bit more. I'll be. I shouldn't say we. I will be a little bit more selective about where we choose because I. Didn't um yeah I'm just a I'm just a cheap guy I just looked at the cheapest one and selected it and that probably yeah, true, wasn't yeah. a great I, decision. <laughs> I think we were like a we were a ten or fifteen minute Uber ride from the venue last time, right? Roughly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 roughly. So you presumably you could get a lot closer of if course, you somehow yeah. managed to pay up some huge price and get into the Marriott or Hilton. That's where you'll run into the likes of um, all the super investors and Bill Gates mm. and so on. That's where they seem to hang out. If you can't get true. In. You got to tell your story about Bill Gates, surely. I think I've told that before, haven't I? Tell um, it again. It's a good one. <laughs> tell it again. Yeah. Um, my uh, uh, my my girlfriend's dad was joking after that, saying like Bill Gates almost got to meet Tom Bodica. It was crazy. Yes. <laughs> exactly. No, right. I I I um yeah was leaving the Aquamarine dinner, so um got to go With to Guy Spear. Guy Spear's like fun dinner, which was um. Super nice of him. He did not have to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, was just waiting for an Uber, like, standing in the foyer sort of area of, I think, the Hilton, one of those two hotels. Um, and, yeah, this, like, um, van pulled up, dude jumped out with a couple of security guards and just, like, boosted straight into the hotel past me, and it was Bill Gates. So nice. Still in the flesh. And then about, about 30 minutes later, um, Monish Pabrai posted a picture on Twitter of him and Bill Gates and I think oh, really? he must have got a photo with him like right then as he was walking in because uh, it looked like it was in the same building. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's crazy. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, Did you say, hey, Bill, have your microchips back? <laughs> yeah, you, you, should have had, you should have had your cake ready to, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The pie to yeah, there, yeah, there was a few moments on that trip where I was like, I'm just living in a simulation. This, this can't yeah. be real. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool, wasn't it? The amount of stuff we got to do. I mean, you, yeah, you really hit the jackpot. You got to go to the Aquamarine dinner. I mean, you're like best buds with Guy Spear now. Am I? Um, yeah, yeah mm. but like, even just like us sitting next to Lee Lu, just across mm. the. How crazy was that? <laughs> yeah, so many cool things. I really wish I got a photo with Tim Cook though, but I was just Brett. Brett got one, but. Um, but I did not, but that's okay. Um, all right. Hopefully that answers that question. Any other things we can think of? Not really. Oh, give yourself uh, a day or two either side for the surrounding events because it's not just the Berkshire meeting. That's the other thing I would say. That's Yeah, that's a good point. There are so many like fun like dinners or barbecues or this and that events, even like content creators doing stuff, all sorts of things. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. What did we, we arrived a couple of days before. 
we well we left like a week after because we just planned to spend the week in Omaha just working on making content. Yeah. But yeah, I think you're definitely right, Tom. A couple of days before, a couple of days after. Yeah, I think yeah. I think just keep an eye out on like um, as many random investing places as you can because people just book events ad hoc. Like we went to yeah. you know the Guy Spear William Green meet and greet. Um, yeah. One thing that is regularly scheduled every year is the Markel brunch. That's always the Sunday morning after the Berkshire meeting. Um, yep, so you can right. go grab a free breakfast and and listen to um, Tom Gainer's kind of Q and A. So me and Hamish did that um, this year. That that was pretty cool. Yep. Um, I think the the We Study Billionaires guys, the Investors Podcast, are having a few events as well. So maybe keep an eye out for that. Um, I'm sure there'll be lots more that starts to get advertised as as the date gets closer. Mm. All right, should we move on? Hamish, you got anything to add? No, no, that's all. Uh, yeah, let's. Nothing to question. add, Charlie. Nothing to add. Yep. Um, all right. What question should we do? Oh, we'll do this one. We'll just keep going down the list. Uh, can you put together a portfolio of 20 high return dividend stocks that could beat, say, Vanguard high yield, or is it easier uh, just to stick with them? Um, so, Tom, can you build this guy say, a portfolio? <laughs> yeah, I would no say no. <laughs> no. I, I just don't know enough about dividend stocks, really, yeah, honestly. No. I, yeah. Yeah, I, I, don't Tom? Know, I don't know what's in the Vanguard high yield. I am I am a hundred percent certain I could give you a portfolio with a higher dividend next year, but it'd be a, a collection of random mining stocks paying like thirty percent dividend yields that'd probably fall off a cliff the following year. So um, <laughs> yeah. Have they that. found gold yet? Have they found gold yet? <laughs> yeah. No, still no. Oh, bugger. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I know there's some like there's some Aussie coal stuff that's probably gonna pay like a fifty percent special dividend and things this year, which is wow. actually kind of interesting. But um yeah, there's um I think probably what you're searching for in that type of structure is like a, a stable growing dividend, I would think. So um, mm, yeah. 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 We're probably Pro- not probably. gonna be much help. No, I, high dividend I, yield ETF. Sorry, even, Hamish. Yeah, even just selecting twenty different companies. I mean, I don't even think I could find. I mean, m- you know, maybe it's different if you're looking at dividend companies specifically. But there's no way if you, even if you just asked me to find pick twenty different companies, I don't think I would be confident in twenty different names. I mean, the the list of companies that I'd be really confident in holding in a portfolio would is far less than twenty. That's for sure. So. Um, even if that was, if you, if I had to pick twenty and it had to beat the index, uh, I would be far less confident if you said pick ten or pick eight and beat the index. Um, yeah, yeah. All right, dividends are overrated anyway. Exactly right. Tom. Yeah, they're not great. Exactly. You have to reinvest them. So boring. Where's the fun in that? Oh, yeah. dividend investors going to give us some hate in the comments. Um, <laughs> I found the Vanguard High Dividend Yield ETF, okay, VYM, and I would like for you guys. Uh, I should say these are American businesses. Can you guess? So I've got the top ten holdings. AT&T. Can you guess? Um, AT and T is not a oh, top damn. ten holding. Are There's a couple all, in there that are. Are they Johnson all like S and P S and P companies? Johnson and Johnson. Yep, you've got one, Tom. Well done. Johnson um, and Johnson is there. It's number two on the list. What pays a high dividend? I don't even know. Verizon. Uh, like Verizon is not on the list. There is um, some pharmaceutical companies. There is oh, some oil um, companies. Pfizer. Pfizer is on the list. Chevron um, is on the list. Oxy. Give me another oil company. Uh, oh, Oxy. Uh, Big boy. Oxy? Not Oxy. Oh. Sorry? 
Shell? Exxon Mobil. No. Exxon Mobil. Yeah, you got Exxon. Yep. Um, there's a couple other. I'll, I'll read you the list. Exxon Mobil at the top, Johnson & Johnson, JP Morgan, Chevron, Procter & Gamble, Home Depot, uh, mm. Eli Lilly, Pfizer, AbbVie, Merck. There you go. Right. Nice. Just, so, just as a could, random- could we make it- Sorry, yeah, you go. I was just going to say, as, as a very random aside, I'm currently reading the um, the autobiography of the Home Depot founder. I think his name's Bernie Marcus. That book is very good. I that highly recommend yeah. Okay. That, that's cool. a cool one. I like those books that are kind of about a specific business, not just like like I like business books in general, but like when they really hone in on a founder or like the Bob Iger book I really liked, that one that you recommended, Tom, about Alibaba that I, I read. That was really good. I like those sort of ones. Hamish, yeah. you read one about Netflix, didn't you? Uh it wasn't a it wasn't a founder book. It was more about um different oh, competitive okay. advantages. Oh, but, that was the but seventh, there's yeah. there's one, um the Texas Roadhouse one. Um oh, his, Texas Roadhouse, his name yeah, is yeah. um um I'm blanking on his name at the moment, but um, but uh, that, that was a really good one. Yeah. The yeah. Home Depot is an interesting story. Uh, I presume the book kind of goes through the founding the company and, and yeah, mm-hmm. so it, it is interesting because that duopoly between Home Depot and Lowe's has been around for so long and it's. In, I don't know all that much about it, but I know a little bit about the different strategy that they kind of like um, Home Depot focuses a little bit more on kind of consumer DIY and Lowe's focuses more on the professional customer, but they both serve both, but with like a slight different focus and store layout and that sort of thing. And it's just interesting to kind of see how they've different times that each has been on top. Like Lowe's has been on top, Home Depot has been on top and they've kind of been like this battle back and forth. Yeah, I, I was I started reading this book and I specifically thought, you know, this is a company that Mr. Hamish Hodder would love. <laughs> as I was reading it, so I think you should check it out. It's a lot, yeah, a lot I, of similarities to like a Costco, like yeah. warehouse style, everyday low prices. Um, yeah, it's quite interesting. Like some of the training programs and they and that sort of thing they have for staff to um, kind of upskill them to like help people out to do their DIY projects and, and that type of thing. Um, yeah, it's a really interesting story. Yeah, I looked at, I looked, I spent a bunch of time looking at Lowe's and Home Depot. I think maybe middle of last year or something like that. Um, and I think the share price for both of them has been, I'm not sure what I haven't looked recently, but they've been relatively high, um, most of the time, um, probably partly because they're paying out that massive dividend. Um, so it hasn't been super attractive to me on a valuation basis, but the businesses are certainly fascinating in the industry. And, uh, yeah, it's always interesting to look at kind of a duopoly that's, that's been dominant for an extremely long period of time. So... Yeah, it's one. It's one of the rare retail type things that's managed to um, completely just like burn through the Amazon risk that's killed a bunch of other retailers as well. Yeah, it it is interesting because I mean there will be some evolution in on for e-commerce, but uh, by and large, a lot of it will there there won't be too much evolution. Um, certainly, to not the same extent as other parts that you know Amazon has been able to. Uh, cannibalize or, or, or steal market share really easily. So it, it is an interesting kind of unique case. I'm not super familiar with the property and, and construction industry. So um, maybe that played a role in my hesitance as well. But uh, it's, uh, it's certainly kind of a fundamental part of society that you wouldn't imagine is um, going to go away anytime soon. 
Yeah, and, and I think the the help that like Home Depot associates seem to offer people is like really underrated. Like the there's a story in the book about some of the early days of Home Depot and this guy's like um, playing golf or something with the Home Depot founder, and he's saying, you know, Home Depot is just it's it's not going to work. Like I went in to buy a two hundred dollar tap that I needed the other day, and one of your associates told me that I just need this washer for like ninety nine cents, and I can fix it. <laughs> uh, like you're not going to make any money doing that. And the founder's kind of like, well, where are you going to go next time you need something for your house? You know, he's like Home Depot. Oh, of course, it all makes sense. Now. There you go. Yeah, yeah. Smart, yeah. smart. All right. Um, all right. Should we move on? Oh, this is one that I want to ask both of you boys, especially after we were hanging out with uh, Sir Matthew Peterson over in the United States. Have you been able to sell options on US shares in Australia? And I'll extend that to Australia and New Zealand. If yes, how? Do you guys end up putting that plan into action after we spoke to Matt Peterson? Uh, I, I've been spending a bit of time going back and forth with my accountant just to check the tax implications, but I will right. I will likely start implementing that actually. Nice, Hamish, you 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 are red hot out the gates. I remember we were sitting down over in the states, and you're like trying to open a flipping what was it, interactive brokers well, account? You're like, they're asking me so many bloody questions. Well, I know it's just let me <laughs> let me do my options trading, dude. Yeah, there, there is a lot of ta- huge. There, there's, a, there's, there's a fair bit of tax complexity that goes with it, and I'm a, I'm a man of simple. I like things that are simple. I like having one focus. I like my accounts simple. So it definitely adds an element Black of complexity. T-shirts. Black, Black t-shirt, t- one, yeah, I, one focus, one girlfriend, one. Di- yeah, yeah, no zero. And then, um, <laughs> if you, yeah, if you look, if you look in my cupboard, um, <laughs> the the perfect number, the perfect number. Um, if you look in my cupboard, it's just all black t-shirts. So um, that's why I'm always wearing black t-shirts. Um, what were we talking about? Yeah, so I like simplicity. So that, that that's helped me back a little bit. But I I set up the account. You can do it through in Australia interactive brokers. I'm not sure if you can uh, what other platforms offer it, but the major banks don't offer it anymore. They used to, but they don't. So um, interactive brokers. So I've set it up, but I was waiting for tax to kind of um, f- finish my taxes for the last financial year before um, adding another headache uh, to my uh, to my tax return <laughs> for the foreseeable future. Yeah, fair enough. But certainly it's something that I want to um, – use it makes logical sense um if you understand what you're doing which it is complex so it's certainly not for the for i think the average person probably but if you know what you're doing then um then then it's a strategy that seems to make sense um yeah it it can definitely be done from what i understand the tax implications are actually probably a little simpler on australia than New Zealand. In New Zealand, we have this weird thing about whether you're an investor or a trader and you have slightly different tax treatment and it's um, a real gray area which category you fall into sometimes. But um, Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, like I've had um, had uh, Mitch and Cass Dole. I'm not sure if you guys follow them on Twitter, but I've had them on my podcast a couple of times. They're Aussie couple, which... Um, oh, no, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, have yeah. done a, a fair bit of stuff um, with options and had success. So, yeah. Nice. Definitely be I wouldn't call. I don't think I'd call us options traders. That's for sure. All right. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, the, um, the Peterson strategy is like using them as a tool to get a slightly lower cost basis when mm. you buy a stock and yeah. you know capture a bit of premium on the way out. They're just tools to get in and out of your regular boring kind of long term holdings. Yeah. It's not actually. Yeah. It's not actually option op- options trading. It's value investing, but utilizing options to do exactly what you said. Yeah. Um, okay, how do you determine how you, how to buy your tranches? 
do you save by the first tranche at 50% margin of safety, then a second at 75% margin of safety, etc. Um, we've I've spoken about this a little bit before. I think we've spoken about this, Hamish. I don't have a hard and fast rule. Um, I'm wondering, do you have kind of any principles or any ways that you think about it, Tom? Is there, or you just kind of go with the flow a little bit? Yeah, this is one of the things that's actually changed like a bunch over time for me. Um, okay. I would say, and again, there's no, I don't really have any hard and fast rules, but typically I would try to break a purchase into at least like two um, different kind of purchase events, I guess. Um, you yeah, thinking I, like roughly the same size or is it more like, oh, I'll just dip my toes in and see how I feel about it. And then if I'm feeling good, I'll really go into it or how, like, yeah, how do you think? Usually the same size, but I think there is a okay. very real psychological thing to where once you actually own shares in a business, you pay a lot more attention to it and follow it much more closely and stuff. So um, there can definitely be a bit of, you know, conviction building between those purchases and things as well. Um, mm. And there's lots of other factors that go into it outside of like, the price goes down a certain amount and I should maybe add more or whatever. Um, you know, like this year I've added to businesses that have been in my portfolio for like almost four years and stuff that I haven't bought for four years um, just because prices have come down or whatever. Mm. Um, and you kind of have to stack it up against like other opportunities that you've got in your portfolio. Like you might be thinking, you might be thinking, you know, I'm going to put a certain amount of money into this particular stock over the next couple of months, but then some other business pops up or some other stock in your portfolio gets cut in half and suddenly you're like opportunity set changes. So there's, there's not really a super simple framework I could, I could give. That's kind of what you go back to, isn't it, Hamish? It's kind of like where the opportunities, where should you be putting your money? That kind of thing is, is more the framework that you kind of adopt, right? Yeah, I do. I do like to dip my toes into pretty much everything that I buy before it's got into a really good price. Um, and when I say dip my toes in, I mean like literally like 1% of the portfolio or like 2%. Um, and it is what Tom kind of spoke about. It's more, it's more psychological so that I own a piece of it and I'm going to pay more attention to it. Um, rather than, you know, um, thoroughly enjoying the price that I'm buying it at at that particular moment. Um, but then, yeah, once it's within a range, I mean, there's no, I don't think you can have a fixed, oh, I'm going to buy here and then here and then here. I think as long as when you're buying aggressively, you are happy with the price, uh, then, you know, once it's into that range, you should be fairly aggressive with it. You shouldn't be trying to... F- time the market and, and think, oh, maybe it's going to continue to get worse. Uh, I tend to break my investments up into a few different packets, but that's more, um, you know, I invest a significant amount. And then if it does happen to get cheaper, then I'm obviously happy to contribute more to that. It's not that I'm kind of timing the market or anything like that. So, um, but I'm, I, I'm generally pretty aggressive once it gets into a range that I'm happy with. Um, I'm looking very quickly to build that position out to its maximum because uh, it's already reached a price where I think that I can do very well on it and and it has a margin of safety. So as long as those two things are satisfied, there's really very little rational reason to wait. Um, maybe that means you do end up missing out on it, falling a little bit further, but you can't predict that that's going to happen. So you just have to be confident when you're at whatever price you are buying it at. Yeah, the the thing that I've seen people, the thing where I've seen people get into trouble with this type of stuff is um, they build they build a full position straight out of the gate, and then the stock gets like cut in half, and then they're like, 
oh, this looks really interesting. Maybe I should add some more. And then all of a sudden it's like a 50% position and you're like, what the hell have I done here? Um, <laughs> I, I've, yeah, seen, yeah. I've seen yeah. a lot of people do that with Alibaba, yeah. for example. Uh, yes. like, I, I think you have to have, you know, you have to have a cutoff at some point and go, okay, there's, there's a possibility I might be wrong here. Yes, um, yes, yes. You know, mm-hmm. I, I'm not a complete genius that, that knows everything. So that that's the other just word of caution I would, I would put out there. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't go fifty percent on a single <laughs> stock. I think uh, <laughs> I think you'd have to have some level of co- some serious level of conviction to to put fifty percent of your money in. And it, it, you're right; it, it can be tempting to do that if you have this value mindset and you just think, "Oh, I'm just for averaging down. I'm just." But my average price is so good now. You you can that is like a psychological trap. I think some value investors yeah. fall into. I think most people, if the stock falls fifty percent, rather than doubling down, they just cut it, cut the loss, which is another potential mistake, but definitely both sides are mistakes and you have to, you know, yeah, pre-establish how much you're going to put into that position so that you don't, uh, yeah. don't fall into that trap. Um, yeah. yeah that's, and, that's and, the, sure. and the like 70% position from various averaging downs may work spectacularly, but um, yeah. you, you don't, you don't want to be in that situation if it goes the other yeah. direction. Yeah. Works a hundred percent of the time, 20% of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah. I think basically what you guys are saying is that I should fucking mortgage my house and just buy Bitcoin. Is that yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Sell everything, okay. buy Bitcoin, mortgage your house. Michael, it, Michael yeah. Saylor style. <laughs> Sell all my blo- belongings. Yeah. Right. All, all the business income yeah. straight into Bitcoin. Right, yeah. Cool. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Hashtag not financial advice. Yeah. Um, Okie dokie. Let's do. What's this one? Oh, yeah, this this is an interesting one because <clears throat> this is something that I used to do and my approach has definitely changed. Hello, could the three of you comment on the Filltown approach of mixing value investing and technical analysis? I think this is talking about the first book, Rule 1. Um, I find the approach very confusing in practice. I prefer to stick to classical long-term investing and position sizing, even if uh, catching a falling knife hurts from time to time. So I think this is referring back to there's a chapter or two in rule one, which says, yeah, yeah, you know, do your value investing stuff, but also you can look at the MACD, you can look at the stochastics, you can look at the moving averages and you can, you know, line them up and make sure that you're only buying when, all of the big money is flowing back into a stock and then you sell when it's flowing out of the stock. And I think specifically he talks about doing that within a a Roth IRA. And I think that's actually a big component of that kind of approach because all the stuff that happens inside those accounts is just tax-free. But obviously, if if we did that, we would cop quite a a few tax implications, I would say, which might uh, put a damper on things. But anyway, long story short, what are your thoughts on this mix of technical and fundamental? Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't use technical analysis at all. Um, I've never found it particularly compelling. I think it goes back to what we were talking about before where I, when, when I started investing, I looked at a lot of different uh, ways that different successful investors go about it. And, and there are a number of um, people who use technical analysis. And I just never found any of it particularly compelling. Um, I found it much more compelling that it really doesn't matter what the price does in the short term. Sure, maybe theoretically there could be some some way that you could you could avoid some of the downs and ups that do kind of um, impact your your long term return. But what's going to drive the most value in 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 your investment is going to be 
uh, you know, approximately what price you paid for it and then where does the, that business go in the future. So um, understanding and spending time on that process is much more interesting to me rather than uh, maybe trying to save myself a couple of percent here and there uh, on the entry and the exit um, by kind of buying in and out. And I, yeah, again, I just never found it particularly compelling. And this kind of approach, if done, you know, maybe it can be done successfully, but if it was done in unsuccessfully, maybe it means that you you uh, end up selling out of a business uh, when it's already at a price that you would be, you know, happy to be investing at it in, in at, um, and that would be a disaster. Um, so again, coming back to simplicity, I think I just like the simplicity of focusing on the business and ignoring the stock almost entirely, except for, you know, what price I'm, I'm buying it at, obviously. But besides that, doing kind of zero trading or, or any of that. Um, what do you, what do you think about this, Tom? Yeah, I, I have basically like deleted the back third of rule one from my mind. So yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm more or less in the same camp. And, and if you, if you were to use that, like Matt Peterson, options overlay i I basically think you you can't really use the technicals either because you're getting you know put shares in a company if the price goes down or or whatever so um Mm. that's where i'm at yep fair 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 i agree i do not use them anymore Although I did find them interesting and apparently a lot of youtubers are making like a hundred thousand dollars a month by technical analysis. So I think that that's something we should definitely look can into. I, folks. Can I learn that through any sort of course? Do you, do you uh, <laughs> yes, actually. I saw a few pop up the other day. I'll have to go and find them and I'll, I'll, I'll link them to you, Tom. Okay, I'll, I'll link them to you off air. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully oh, God, there's a Christmas sale. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? Actually, now that you mention it, I think there might be. <laughs> and it's something crazy too. It's like 80% off. Just mm-hmm. unreal. So now instead, you, you're only paying $999 wow. for the course. So it's like an absolute yeah, right. steal. Yeah. Make 1% per day, you know, yeah. 700% compounded yeah. over a year or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. It was like, Sounds yeah, good. yeah. How, how long do you have? <laughs> if you make 1% a day, how long do you have to? until you can retire isn't it like less than a year or something yeah (laughs) you like start with a dollar or something not making one percent a day yeah it's not it's dumb it's stupid so stupid Mm. all right hamish you want to send one um yeah let's have a look how do you know if a company is undervalued and worth investing in uh how do you know good one how do we do it how do we do it Discounted a, cash flow analysis. I was going to say, I was going to say, you get a tingly feeling in your left big toe, but that <laughs> might not be it. <laughs> yeah, no, it kind of depends on the company. Like, um, you know, for your typical like compounder bro, steadily growing type stock, maybe it's a discounted cash flow. Um, for a financial company, maybe you're paying more attention to um, book value and reinvestment rate and um, dividend payments, and then maybe for I don't know, a real estate company, you're focusing on like the net asset value or liquidation value. So a few different approaches. Um, yeah, just depends on the business a little bit. But um, yeah, underline all of those different approaches. You're not trying to buy a dollar for 95 cents. You're trying to look for yeah. significant discounts. So it should be, should be obvious. Yeah, I found, uh, I think Monish said this recently that you can figure out fairly accurately what the liquidation value of a company is, but it's very difficult to figure out 
you know, accurately what the actual intrinsic value of the business is or what the future cash flows will be. So I think finding a company that's undervalued isn't really about figuring out what the intrinsic value is exactly. It's about coming up, at least for me, it's about coming up with a extremely conservative model that is very likely to occur. So a model that presents intrinsic value as it being far lower than what is likely the reality. And then if I'm able to buy far below that, then I can be extremely confident that it is undervalued. So I can be confident that a business is undervalued without knowing particularly where intrinsic value is for the company. Um, mm. So I think that's an important distinction is you, you, I'm not trying to like shake my crystal ball and be like, okay, cash flows are going to be this, 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 this. Uh, it's more of a process of what's a really reasonable, safe case that they that mm. seems reasonable over time, and maybe they'll far, hopefully they'll far exceed that. But can I buy the business with this kind of base case um, in mind? Yeah, that, at least that's how I go about it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's no, I, th- I think that's smart. I mean, you definitely go through all the steps. You definitely do the discounted cash flow. You're not just like, ah, PE is so low. Yeah, why not? Let's go. But um, you definitely do all those steps and you try and get as accurate as possible and you really think about growth rates and stuff and you you figure it out. But at the end of the day, it's got to be obvious. Like it's got to just, it's got to like whack you in the face and just be like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, I'm buying it from what I can tell a lot, lot cheaper than- um, than what it's actually worth. They're the ones where you just like, I don't know, it gives you that confidence, that real conviction, that real confidence where you know that, okay, even if I have made a mistake here, even if I've made a large mistake, then I probably won't get crucified. <laughs> you know, I'll probably, hopefully, um, I mean, stocks can go to zero. They can do that. But um, yeah, it's definitely when you hit that real big undervalued stock, then you're like, oh yeah, okay, I feel feel better about this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, all right, cool. Should we do maybe uh, like uh, a couple more? I'm trying to think how long we've been going more. for. Yeah, maybe. Well, I think we're getting kind of through most of them. So we just do did that one. Um, how about well, let's do this one here. From which people did you learn a lot of what you know and why? Uh, do, and do you have any book recommendations? So. Maybe we'll just do a summary, like I think because most of the people we look up to are going to be the same. Maybe who are the people that influenced your learning the most and what kind of books do you think influenced your learning the most? Uh, do, do, you want to, do you want to go, Tom, or do you want me to go? Uh, yeah, I can go. Uh, I We're probably going to have a lot of overlap here, but yeah. There will be da- a lot. All three of us, there'll be a lot of overlap for yeah, sure. Yeah. Early days, it was definitely Phil Town. I'd probably even still push people towards those um the Filtown books, if you're like absolute beginner. Um, Basic frameworks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I guess the evolution was kind of like Filtown, um, then Brian Guy Spear, then kind of direct to Buffett and Munger. I think that's very hard to beat the, um, like the Buffett partnership and Berkshire Hathaway letters. So I would definitely um, recommend that. Poor Charlie's Almanac up there behind me is pretty good too. Hey. Um, yeah. They're, they're all good places. What's what's like one one investor that you you never kind of thought that you might learn stuff from? Like, what do you have one that's kind of a little bit out of left field that you're like, I I never thought that I would learn about this investor, but actually some of the stuff resonates. Or no good examples. I mean, I don't or a book, that. or a book, or something like that. 
Uh, Nothing uh, springing to mind, honestly. Nah, that's, yeah. all right, that's all right. Yeah. That's I all right. I mean, definitely Nick's sleep. I know I talk about him a lot, but it's just refreshing because it's such a modern um, uh, kind of example of someone who not only is applying, I think, what you pro- like pretty much Charlie Munger um, style principles or modern kind of Warren Buffett's uh, you know, high quality businesses, but also demonstrating uh, in detail his thesis on those companies through his letters. Um, that's really rare. Um, you get to hear from interviews, you know, other value investors and, and kind of generally what their thesis is on, on companies. But um, Nick is one of those people who very rare, uh, very rare people who goes super in depth, <clears throat> super in depth, uh, not only into the company and, and the competitive advantages and the management team, but, you know, the valuation and how he's projecting out. I've never seen anybody give that much detail. Um, I mean, he was talking about, you know, it was talking about Costco and how he was measuring the the population density and I think it was Seattle or wherever they started and then it was expanding the number of stores across the US and it it's just it's like step by step exactly how pretty much how he valued the company um and that's really been really valuable to to kind of go through that even though he the the only downside to Nick Sleep is that he's only focusing on kind of one type of competitive advantage, which is that scale economy is shared. Whereas mm. um, there's obviously many other different types of businesses um, and, and different types of competitive advantages that you could learn about. Um, so yeah, mm. yeah, I think I'm the same as you guys, pretty much. Um, the uh, the thing that one one that I guess uh, still pretty everybody reads it. Peter Lynch, one up on Wall Street. I think Peter Lynch is the one that really gave me the sense of um, what I was saying before. How it's just like it's got to be obvious. It's just like you know, just you like just sit back, use your brain. You know, you should be able to explain the thesis in two minutes to a ten-year-old. You know, it should be quite clear, quite obvious. You know, don't fall into any of these psychological traps. Don't buy it because of this reason or that reason. Just have your thesis, work out your valuation. It should just be like, mm, this is clear, this is obvious, and I think that's one that that's that comes to mind. But beyond just all the classic town, Guy Spear, Monish Pabri, Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger, yeah. All right, cool. Um, um, what's a what's a good book you guys read in the last year or so that you can recommend for people? Maybe people uh, people want to read something over the Christmas break, investing related or business related, uh, just generally. Phil Fisher books are really good. I was I haven't finished it, but I'm reading. Um, oh my god, the names of everything are blank. I'm blanking on me today, but um, uh, one of Phil Fisher's main books is um, is is, is really interesting. Profits. So. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, there's a lot of valuable principles in there, and it's uh, it, it's kind of one of the people that Buffett talks about as as being an, an inspiration for for some of his investing principles. So. Um, yeah, there's a there's a there's a ton of value in that for sure. Mm. Yeah, Tom, you got a good book. I think one one for me that I always go back to, and this is more like just like being a better person, being a better communicator, is um, how to win friends and influence people. I've read it before. I've read it a couple of times before, but that one always just stands out. It's just such a good book. Such a good book. I'd definitely recommend that. Yeah. Um, what about you, Tom? Yeah, earlier this year, I well, read- sorry, just just quickly, what was the Home Depot book you were reading? Uh, yeah, called? sure. So it's Kick, Kick Up Some Dust by Bernie Marcus. Okay, yeah, I think it's cool. just very recently come out, but um, it's yep. a pretty quick quick read. It's really good. Uh, I think nice. Bernie Marcus is like into his nineties now, and um, right. someone convinced him to 
write an autobiography. So, um, yeah, that's he must lot. have watched a passive income video on YouTube. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, like, lots his ebook, ebook empire. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, I, earlier this year, I've, I finally got around to reading The Outsiders by William Thorndike. I'm not sure if you guys have, have read that before. No, I've not. Um, yeah. yeah. You guys should. Oh, what's it about? What's the gist? Right after this podcast, I think that's like a must read for all investors. Um, Ooh, it's like a case okay. study. So I think there's seven or eight chapters, and it's case studies on really successful public company CEOs with kind of a focus on good capital allocators. So yeah, it um, Warren Buffett is one of the chapters. It also um, goes into the story of Henry Singleton. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with Henry Singleton, but yeah. he's he's um, He's a guy that built um, a really successful conglomerate and he was like the master of managing his like share capital. So uh, when he was first building the business, he'd like issue shares, these numbers are going to be off, but something like issue shares at 20 times earnings to buy private businesses at 10 times earnings and he'd just kind of run that engine. And then the equation kind of flipped later in his career to where, um, you know, his stock was trading at a much cheaper multiple than he could buy private companies at so he ended up buying back 90 percent of the shares outstanding Um, (laughs) and it's just like yeah insane home run he like never talked to um analysts or anything everyone thought he was a little crazy and he probably was um and (laughs) there's there's just lots of chapters on other ceos i think um uh tom murphy who ran cap cities um is one of the chapters he's like a ceo that buffett has really admired um John Malone from the Liberty Media Complex is one of the chapters. Um, so, yeah, that would definitely recommend that. So, The Outsiders by William Thorndike. Um, and this is a bit of a random one, but if anyone's interested in understanding banks, which I managed to get into the, that rabbit hole earlier in the year, uh, the Bank Investor's Handbook is actually fantastic. So, less okay, dry cool. than you might expect. Yeah, I would like to actually, because I just know it absolutely nothing about banks like i'm so so bad it's probably just good general knowledge anyway if we're talking about stocks and finance just to have a better understanding of something that's so integral to the system um all right cool gents gg Oh, wait, hang on. We've got nice one more work. question. Uh, do you think IQ is correlated with penile length? Really important question. Yeah, this, this is one of the weird ones that we were like, I don't know if we include that. Do you think IQ is correlated to penile Tom, length? Tom, okay, any thoughts? Well, yeah. Um, no, I, I have nothing to add on that question. Nothing, no, nothing, nothing yeah. to add. It nothing can't be true because my IQ is really low. So we'll just end on that note. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. <laughs> All right. Um, is, Merry Christmas, we doing- everyone. Yeah, we will wrap it up there for today. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, hope you uh, put up with us while we're uh, having a little bit of a break over Christmas and uh, hope you en- hopefully you enjoyed uh, this episode. We will be back. Uh, I'm not sure what we're going to do over New Year's. We might um, we we'll might have another, we'll maybe another pre-recorded. We'll, we'll kind of see. Um, but certainly we'll be back um, uh, next year uh, for more episodes of the Young Investors Podcast. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And uh, thanks, everybody, for joining me today. Brandon and Tom, special guest. Have to have you back on again soon. Um, Thanks, mate. But uh, with that said, have a good Christmas and New Year's. We'll see you guys next week. See you guys. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.